Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning. My name is Andrea Simintov, and you are listening to Pull Up a Chair on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. We've lately uh, kind of um, had some fun. We're changing formats, and um, I'm getting used to it. So if I'm sounding a little stilted, uh, drop me a note, Andrea at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. And after you tell me how much you love the show, say, gee, Andrea, you've been sounding a little stilted. And I'll say, okay, I'll try to loosen it up. All right. Um, Today's show is, uh, I don't know what I posted it on Facebook as, but I'd like to call it Perpetual Morning. And I have my reasons for that. I will explain later what Perpetual Morning is. But I'd also like to say that we're going to, um, we're going to dedicate the show to the memory of Roy Klein, Roy E. Klein. I know we have listeners, holy listeners, um, tuned in this morning to the live broadcast from all over our blessed land of Israel. And most of you know who Roy E. Klein was. But for the rest of our listeners, I'd like to say that Roy E. Klein um, is a 31-year-old. He was a major in the Israeli army, the Golani, the precious, famed, celebrated Golani Brigade of uh, Tzahal, the Israeli Defense Forces, and um, he was very highly decorated, and the date actually was on July 26, 2006. Those of us who are here remember this day. I mean, when we talk about a modern Jewish hero, Roy E. Klein, he died by jumping on a grenade during the Battle of Bint Jabil. He jumped on a gr- grenade to save his fellow soldiers. Um, apparently when a grenade is lobbed, one doesn't have a lot of time to think it through. Um, and just to let you know who he was, 31 years old, young, married, handsome. I know it's said often, one life doesn't, isn't more valuable than another. Well, you know, I'm not God and we're not playing God here. But Roy Klein's life was valuable. And of course, none of us can possibly know what contributions he would have made to the world. Uh, He was a mathematics student. He was real. He was really a there, but for the grace of God, go you or I, or one of our more accomplished sons or cousins. And what actually happened during this um, attack was a hand grenade was thrown over the wall It was during a Hezbollah ambush, uh, and it was thrown over the wall, and it fell between the militants and Klein and his unit, and with seemingly, uh, without a thought, he jumped on the live grenade and muffled the explosion with his body, undoubtedly saving the lives of so many. And the soldiers who witnessed the scene reported that... um, he jumped, shouting the words, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echod. This is our um, prayer. We wake up in the morning, we say it during the day, and we also say it when we know that we're going to die. 
He jumped on the grenade, and as it exploded, he was critically wounded. He was not killed immediately. He reported his own death, shouting into his radio, Klein is dead, Klein is dead. In the following moments, this is all reported, as he lay dying, he still shouted out orders who, to the soldiers who came to administer assistance to him, aid to try to evacuate him. And he said, no, no, forget me. Focus on Lieutenant uh, Amichai Merchavia. He was another soldier who had been hit and later he sadly died instead. And then he handed over his encoded radio to another soul officer um, who took command of the force and then Klein shut his eyes and died. This is not stories that are made in Hollywood. It is stories about Israel. It is a story about the best of us. Roy E. Klein became a symbol, a modern, touchable, approachable, findable symbol for heroism in Israel. New schools have been named after him in Netanya, I believe, in Renana. Renana, uh, what happened to me here? Um, for his actions during the war, Klein received the Medal of Courage posthumously. Um, we're in the three weeks, the three weeks that commemorate the destruction of the two Beis HaMikdash, the three weeks which will culminate in Tisha B'Av, our eternal day of mourning, when Jewish self-hatred and hatred between ourselves resulted in some of the most heinous events in Jewish history. Roy Klein was the symbol of everything we could be and everything we should be, living his life as a B'nai Akiva um, leader, as a college warrior, and as a proud soldier who loved, protected, and died taking care of his brothers. He really is the embodiment of all we could be. What is perpetual mourning? Okay. Oh, let me first say, we have listeners in this morning from um, late at night. Um, wow, it's late at night in the U.S. Hi, Canada. I love seeing that you're here. I somehow feel safe when I know that Canada's listening in because I know that the nice people are listening. <laughs> oh, Boketov, Eretz Israel. Um, I think we have Renana and Ashdod are with us this morning. Algeria. This is very interesting. We have listeners this morning from Algeria. Good morning. Lebanon is listening in. And then I have a list of other. I do. I have it on personal, personal um information that I do have some friends in South Africa listening in. Ah, Brazil is with us, Taiwan. Very nice. Okay. Years ago, years ago, years ago, a very dear, clever friend of mine explained to me, she was in the business of um, healing people who were facing the, the worst, the inevitable. And she told me that there's something called perpetual mourning. And it's very often, um, it's a term that's used in the world of divorce. And sadly, I was going through a, a, a really very painful divorce and my children were not doing well. And anybody in here, unfortunately, it's not a, an exception today. Divorce is very, very prevalent. 
And what she was telling me is that children suffer from something frequently called perpetual mourning. And what does that mean? When we mourn, we know certainly in, in Yiddishkeit and Judaism, there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. Not an end. We always commemorate. We have our yurt sites, our anniversaries of the dead. But life goes on. And there's something about the shock of losing a person, burying a person, sitting shiva, mourning for the person, and then doing what we call the shloshim, the month, the year. And then, but 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 there's a, a set of circumstances that we can adjust our psyche to in the normal course of mourning that connects to death. And she was saying that when it comes to divorce, children are in a state frequently of what they call perpetual mourning because the sadness continues, the self-reflection continues, and it's not as though they can put it away and say, okay, this is over. There's always that connectedness. And it goes into different um, a different, different areas of life. We Jews live in a state of perpetual mourning by the sheer fact that we do not have our Beis HaMikdash, we do not have our holy temple, we do not have our central connected place in which we celebrate our centrality to Torah. And because of that, we've become a very disparate people and we're all over the world. So that's what these three weeks are. And one of the things is I've been living as a Torah observant Jew for, oh my gosh, a long time already, 40, 60, more than 40 years. So the three, Torah, but Google, but go into great sites, go into Asha Torah, go into Or Sameach, go into Naale, go into Rabbi Sachs, go into Rabbi Wine. There's so many. Look at, listen to the Shirim of Revitzin, Tziporahela. I'm speaking rapidly. And learn about the three weeks and the nine days and see how you fit into this fabric of perpetual mourning. Um, one of the things I came across today, let me just see, because I'm looking at the time, the format only leaves me a few minutes. Um, let's see. There was a wonderful, okay, so we talk about how good we are at mourning, you know, and of course we've had a lot of practice doing it over our centuries. The three week period, if I can just explain before we go to our first little break here, this three week period of mourning, it's, it's inextricably connected with the destruction of the temples in Jerusalem. It's so hard for us to connect to um, because if you can't see it, you can't taste it, you can't meet it, you know, what do we really need it for? We have our communities, but there are other tragedies and sadness that are um, also connected to at this time of mourning. You know, Moshe's act, Moshe, Moses, his act of breaking the tablets of stone um, on Har Sinai, Mount Sinai, and witnessing that golden calf being worshipped by Jews, the burning of the Torah by oppressors of Israel, and other terrible, sad events, if we can take these moments and actually really put ourselves, how would we react? You know, we have so many fast days on the Jewish calendar, and they carry with it a kind of an overtone of sadness. When we come back, we're going to talk about that disparate connectedness to one another and maybe, just maybe, what we can do with it. 
My name is Andrea Sinato. See you on the other side. got a note that says woohoo south africa is in the house so <laughs> now we can move um very curious so many it's beautiful i mean i know that we have a uh, taiwan listening in this morning as well but what's really incredible is i find it fascinating how many different communities in canada isn't it like late at night in canada okay uh very nice so came across a piece it's all over the map i feel like i'm all over the map here today i don't know why i'm all over the map here today but there was a um a posting by both a facebook friend of mine although i can't really admit that he's a great buddy but daniel gordis and um anybody who follows israeli politics it follows his uh jewish thought zionist celebration are we allowed to even say that uh knows who daniel gordis is he's a, a prolific writer and he's an israeli he's an author he's a speaker and he is a fierce fighting rock star when it comes to israeli advocacy okay we really have to get him on the show so having said that <laughs> all right so he brings up a um a post that came out by Yehuda Kurtzer. Kurtzer. Remember, I think we had a, a, there was a diplomat named Dan Kurtzer. Anyway, this is Yehuda Kurtzer of the Sholem Hartman Institute. Admittedly, Sholem Hartman Institute is known to be a modern Orthodox um, institute of higher learning. So he bring he writes an article and it's called Enough is Enough. And he talks about, and everything I do is extrapolate because I don't have the patience to actually read through these things. Um, but it says that, you know, in the past few weeks, a brouhaha has emerged on social media around the fact that Avodah, they always have like the greatest names, these kind of modern orthodox, modern, modern free thinking uh, Jewish think tanks have. And it's, and uh, Kurtz says it's a good and credible Jewish social justice organization. Anybody listening in from America probably knows more about it than I do. And apparently this organization, Avodah, hired and then fired an individual for a temporary social media job because the number of tweets came to light in which this person, uh, who will remain nameless, refers to Zionists as, here we go, drum roll, genocidal freaks. And he denounced all Zionists as extremely ugly and said a whole bunch of other terrible things about Israel and Zionists, um, which were all completely subjective. Anyway, he was fired. But in the weeks since, um, there's been a campaign of over 150 alumni of Avodah. Curious if any of you are listening to the show. Drop me a note because debate discourse is always critical who are using the general, their general, um, they're just using their platforms to condemn Avodah for the decision to, are you ready to capitulate to the pressure of those in the Zionist camp and to fire the person? 
Um, the alumni call the Avodah to repent and pay severance to this um, almost employee. Okay. Kurtzer goes on and he says, really, I'm in agreement with him on this. And he says he finds it sickening. He would fire immediately anyone who worked for him who used any derogatory language like this on social media and any group. But in a Jewish organization that's supposed to, my quotes, tolerate uh, even reference to Zionists. You know, you want to push for the Jewish community to have a bigger tent on Israel Arab themes. Okay. But to, this is Kurtz's word, but to include people who despise half the Jewish people and feel they can mock them, deride them, and insult them with impunity, where's the dignity in that? What kind of community have we become? This is like a perfect three weeks um, ping. You know, Gordis, who posted this, who kind of came across this and, and says kind of... Um, What's the word? I'm really having a terrible problem, friends. I'm losing my English, but it's not getting replaced with anything. Um, he has occasional bones to pick with Kurtzer, but he says that if he still lived in the U.S., this is what he would say to his colleagues. Enough is enough. It's not only about tactics, but it's about worldview. It's time to fight back and to declare that anti-Zionism is beyond the pale. Um... You know, people are allowed opinions, and hopefully we're going to get to the point where I'm going to talk about the walkout in the University of Michigan Medical School that so many of you um, are aware of. We actually, I think people are listening in from Michigan this morning, uh, the walkout, and I'm not, I'm, not off, I'm not off topic here, but just keep this in mind. Dialogue, discourse, difference of opinion respectful rights to agree to disagree it's all it's all um it's all out the window what Gordis goes on to say is that he's come to understand during a visit to the states recently that he did not fully understand is just how many mainstream anti how how anti-Zionism has become very mainstream in a lot of the circles here. I must admit, friends, I have Israeli blinders on somehow to live in the land of Ra'i Kleins, to live in the land of six-day wars, to live in the land of high-tech medical advancement, water irrigation. We forget we're the size of New Jersey. We really do see Israel, and then there's the rest of the world. So we do become blinded to how unpleasantly we are viewed by so much of the world. Um, someone shared a letter with Gordis recently, which he says that a leading American rabbi complaining that um, his congregation had a guest speaker who derided anti-Zionists, and the complaint that the speaker had no right to characterize anti-Zionists in a negative light. The letter read in part, 
All of us are committed members of this community in shul. All of us think anti-Zionist Jews deserve a place in the shul and deserve not to be demonized or called anti-Semitic. Anti-Zionists are not some faraway menace. They are not cranks. Anti-Zionists are beloved members of this community. They give services, give divrei Torahs, that's uh, Torah speeches. They pay dues. They teach. They chat with you in the Kiddush line and have a deep love for this community and synagogue. Notice what's missing? Many of them are young adults or teenagers who represent the future of the synagogue and the Jewish community. They are self-loving, community-loving Jews who also believe that the safest, most just, and most moral future for Israel and Palestine, quote, sick, un, uh, not quote, uh, paren, un, paren, ensures all Israelis and Palestinians have equal rights. Let's leave aside for a minute the insanity that the end of Zionism will um ensure a safe future for Jews in America not and the rest of the world, you have to be really ignorant of Jewish history and what's happened in the Middle East to even imagine such a thing happening. Um, the Jewish state, the end of a Jewish state, will be the end of meaningful Jewish community in the place uh, we call Israel and the end of safety for millions of Jews. And that includes Jews listening in on this. And it includes even those Jews who disagree with the Zionist stance. You know, it's not a marginal synagogue who's saying this. This is really the center stuff. <sighs> Listen to this. There are apparently rabbinical students all over the U.S. on both coasts, according to Gordas, share with him how hard it is to be a Zionist in a rabbinical school today. Now, I have to tell you, I actually didn't even think of such a thing. All I think about is our beloved Jewish college students who hide their Jewish stars, hide their chais, who come up with a different excuse that they're not going to school on Rosh Hashanah or on Yom Kippur. Um, they talk about how most of their classmates self-define as either non-Zionist, anti-Zionist, and how they, the Zionists, are worried that they're going to lose friends and, get ready, actually not be given pulpits because they continue to make it known that they endorse the idea of a Jewish state. Okay, what I really want to say is this. Israel the formidable part of the Jewish future, like it, don't like it, agree with me, disagree, do your research. It's going to be written in Israel, for better or for worse. We'd better be good here. We'd better be strong here. We'd better be clear here. And we better be good to one another here because in Israel, the future of the Jewish people is going to be determined. In 1948, the facts are 600,000 Jews were in Israel, less than there are in New York City. Okay, today there are 7 million Jews living in Israel with the largest community. In a few years, the majority of the world's Jews are going to be living here. To actively engage against the state, which will be the home to the majority of your people, is a dangerous, dangerous game. My friends, I don't know how to fix all the problems. Daniel Gordis doesn't know how. Kurtzer doesn't know how. But I've said it before, you want to engage in the discourse, engage in it here. Israel can handle it. It can handle, it can handle the opposition. 
It can handle the discussion. It can handle different types of Jews, levels of observance, levels of identification, levels of gender identification, and lenders uh, all kinds. Israel is blessed and Israel can handle it. But to sit on a soapbox overseas and tell us how to live or even worse, and it's questionable whether we exist. Let me promise you one thing. We're taking care of it. We're keeping the home fire burnings burning. When you or your children are ready to come home, there's a seat at the table. I'll see you on the other side. Great talk from Israel. Okay, we're here in our last segment of the show. Um, usually in the old days, we used to just give, go right into Devar Torah, but there's a couple of things I want to just, oh my gosh, there's so much to think about. We don't want to mucky it, you know, we don't want to muck it up with too much politics. But just a couple of, I'm sorry, I would be, it would be remiss if I did not say that um, we know that U.S. President Joe Biden, he came, he visited. We know because I had a walk for days. There was no public tra- transportation. That's my memory of the Biden visit. But apparently this comes as no surprise. Um, let's see. Um, the, 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 the. Palestinian slash Arab Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, you know, the eternal president that they hold elections for every 20 minutes. He described, it's going to come as a very big shock to everybody listening in, the Biden visit as a big zero for Palestinians. You know, our problems are so real. It is so real with them. And I know that I'm not supposed to make light of it and not joke. Did we expect anything upbeat? Do we ever expect anything upbeat, positive, optimistic coming out of the Arab camp? It was just, I mean, we anybody listening in could have written this. You know, it's become clear that the other side, Israel, understands only the language of resistance. I tell you, stop me from yawning. Somebody's got to give them, really, they need some new material. He was surprised that he was unable to obtain from Biden a single sentence that could be presented as progress in the political process with Israel. Surprised. Progress. When we want to hear progress coming out of the Arab camp, somebody send me an SMS. I will tune in. All right. I'm sorry. It's like not even funny anymore. I really do have Rachmanis. Real mercy. All right. Um, in our Yahoo moment, let's just give a quick Yahoo moment. You know, we're not going to talk about the upcoming uh, electricity hike. Yeah. Two Yahoo moments. Well, the real one is that the world's largest, I didn't even know such a thing existed, but why shouldn't it exist? There's an international wellness conference. All right. It goes around the world. I don't know. It's been, what is it? I don't even, I didn't even write down where it's been the last few years. Probably comes out of Silicon Valley or something. Oh, yeah. Boston hosted it in 2021. Before that, it was Palm Beach, Florida, Singapore, and Italy before that. Hmm. This year, must have been all on Zoom. But anyway, everybody, the, the era, apparently the era of COVID has awakened the world in an unprecedented fashion 
to wellness, um, you know, the entrepreneurs, executives in fields, to the world of high-tech, beauty, spa, food tech, fitness, hospitality. What's the Yahoo moment? Surprise, Tel Aviv. This year is going to take place in Tel Aviv. And I'm not invited, although I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. Maybe I could use my, my connections here at Israel News Talk Radio to get me a press pass. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm supposed to laugh here. I can hear the engineers yucking in the background. But anyway, um, it says that uh, in the last two years, because of COVID, that health, it used to be kind of this narrow concept uh, you would think of everybody, you know, a health nut, kind of these kind of anemic looking people who are like gray and folded in half, eating bean sprouts and drinking, you know, herb tea in, in kind of musty restaurants. Well, it's totally changed. But get ready for this. This is why I need them to buy me tickets. I need to talk to the administration at Israel News Talk Radio because I'm sure they're going to fork it over. This year, the tickets to the Tel Aviv, even if I don't stay in a hotel, it's going to cost 4500 U.S. dollars. And um, as it gets, that's if I buy my ticket now. It's going to go up, but I can get it in on the bargain basement price. But if you want to attend the Tel Aviv conference by Zoom, it's only going to cost you $650 to sit on your couch and be included. And of course, because it's in Israel, um, it's going to include not only, you know, women's health and femtech. Did you know that that's a thing, femtech? I guess, you know, feminine technology, wellness, travel, and of course, the rising spirituality and faith in wellness. Faith. We don't want to get to Israel and talk about faith. You know, we're not going to talk about electricity. Boring. Okay. I know that this is going to interest so many listeners. I'm saving it for my Shabbos table talk for the husband. You know, while we're supposed to be discussing the three weeks, going into the actual, the last nine days when there were so many different um, customs and laws associated with the best thing I can come up with. Apparently, there is drum roll, a potential cure for baldness. Now, ordinarily, I wouldn't do stuff like that. It kind of sounds like the National Enquirer. But years ago, ironically, it was the same friend who taught me about the concept of um, perpetual mourning. Years ago, years ago, she and her husband, they're, they're very, um, they're very involved in evolving medicine, you know, cutting edge medicine in both the Middle East and around the world. And she told me years and years ago, this was after Christopher Reeve. We all remember the late Christopher Reeve. He was a warrior. He was a health research warrior and he was Superman in the modern Superman movies. Christopher Reeve had had a horse riding accident and he severed his spinal cord and this absolutely magnificent man. He was handsome. He was beautiful. He was really the embodiment of everything that was very, you know, physical beauty, a real modern Adonis. And he was relegated to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And he put all of his money, he was a very wealthy man, and he put a lot of money into Israel's stem cell research. And these friends of mine told me that it would never happen. It could never happen stem cell um, rejuvenation to help the body heal itself. And of course, oh my, 
Okay, just got a very interesting note here. Okay, and of course, we see now that stem cell rejuvenation is a real thing. So we can't scoff at this. This came from, and I can't remember. So if you'll write me a note, Andrea at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com, I'll actually send you the source with some science magazine I got this from. A good one, not, you know, with pictures of like Archie Bunker and anything. Anyway, it says that new research into factors that control life and death of hair follicle cells could help people with baldness as well as wound hearing. There's apparently a connection. Um, you know, I'm not going to go into all of the details here. That's not what you're listening for, but you're excited. Andrea, give me the link. But no one here is entirely, so they're not sure why a, why hair follicles kill themselves. According to some of the hypotheses, it's kind of interesting. It's an inherited trait from animals shedding fur to survive hot summer temperatures or trying to camouflage. Well, my husband, Ronnie, who's very clever, would, in, you know, would jump in here and say, well, Israel's hot. That explains why all these Israeli guys shave their heads for that cool look. Um, but of course, Ronnie was not interviewed for the article. And it goes on to say that even when a hair follicle kills itself, it never kills its stem cell reservoir. Now, I didn't know that. Uh, when the surviving stem cells receive a signal to regenerate, they divide, make new cells, and develop into a new follicle. I think this is really, really wonderful. And it says potentially the work could offer something for help for people suffering from a variety of problems. And you know what? We could laugh. I mean, my late father, I, I heard a story. It must have been in the 1960s. He was losing his hair. And he went to a doctor, some guy in Manhattan who was reputed to, you know, put a big head of hair on your head. And the doctor bent down during my father's visit and said to him, uh, and my father looked at his head and the guy was bald. He had that whole like that circle thing or that male pattern baldness. And when he sat up, my father said to him, but wait a minute, you're bald. And the doctor looked at my father and said to him, yeah, but it doesn't bother me. So my father got up and walked out and never went back. Okay, so it does bother. And what might be sweet and saying, oh, there are so many problems in the world, to be absolutely frank, if somebody's self-esteem is um, affected by this, diminished self-esteem, we have seen it throughout the world. It can have really terrible repercussions, endless. And uh, it's not for us to mock. Okay, this, again, I'm really blind to this stuff and uh, it opens my eyes. Apparently, I've been listening actually to a, a podcast. Um, I'm not going to tell you the name of the podcast because when they'll advertise my show, I'll advertise their show. But it was an incredible um, podcast about uh, organized crime in Rhode Island. Yeah, in Rhode Island during the 1970s and 80s. So um, I'm kind of like in a Rhode Island place. And then out of nowhere, I came across a story that there's a restaurant in Rhode Island Um it doesn't matter the name of the restaurant in their advertising campaign i don't know if they were trying to say that the restaurant was so hot like it's the the must go to place to go to like it's a really hot restaurant or their air conditioning was broken but what did they cleverly think would make a superior um arresting advertising campaign posts of anne frank we all know who anne frank was 
the young girl murdered by the Nazis who left behind her priceless diary to document, document for time immemorial the experiences through young, young girl's eyes. And the meme posted by the restaurant depicts a picture of Anne Frank with the caption, it is hotter in here than an oven, and I should know. Silence, deliberate. Sit with that for a moment. Um, the restaurant in a town in Rhode Island, I'm not even going to identify the town, they apologized on Monday a few days ago for posting this offensive meme. It was a... Um, and according to a, a local radio commentator, uh, Jessica Machado, all right, she calls the restaurant and um, and uh, um, the girl answered the phone and said, I don't know what you're talking about. What post did you post it? So then she asked for a manager. The restaurant called back and a very annoyed restaurant owner said, double down on the meme. He said he Googled it. He thought it was funny. They're very busy. It was very hot there. They didn't have time to deal with concerns or questions. Don't call back. Hung up. It was handled poorly. The restaurant has done a lot of posting to apologize. But Andrea asks the question, what has happened to us? What has happened in this vulgar world? That anything goes, anything for the sake of a yuck, no discretion. We have a concept in Judaism called tsniut. Tsniut translates loosely to modesty. And too often people view modesty as the clothing they're wearing. Not too much cleavage, lower the skirt, the arms. Then it can go on to too much makeup. Let's quiet the look. The way the Amish celebrate being plain. But you know what? Modesty comes in all shapes and all sizes. My favorite form of modesty are the three words. They say, what are the three words, three most important words? I love you. Nah, there's another three important words. I don't know. And when you don't know, it's like I said, my Rebbitson saying, if something doesn't feel right, believe me, I don't care how detached this restaurant manager, advertiser, Googler was. There was a little bit of, we say, migared, a little itching under the surface where he said to himself, I don't know, could this be offensive? And I thought, nah, it's funny. Well, let me tell you, anybody who's Googling their next jokes at the expense of Jews, we're not laughing and we're not sheep and we're not lambs. There are some who say never again, but hide their yarmulkes, their skullcaps, put away their Jewish stars or their high necklaces. We'll eat not kosher food with friends, lest their friends think they're so Jewish. And then there are other Jews who celebrate their birthright with their every being. We're not laughing. It's not our, at our expense. 
And I will tell you now, this station, this host, and other proud Yidin around the world will call you out. Apologies are good. Not being stupid in the first place is a lot better. Okay, yeah, we're not going to talk. Let's go. You know what? Let's go into some Torah. Let's go into some Torah. Maybe another time. The Michigan story will last because sadly, it's a forever and a day and it doesn't change. Wokeness, political correctness, bullying. That's what we're really talking about. How dare you challenge me to say whatever I want? Okay. Let's do a little bit of Parsha before we get into the overview of the three weeks and indeed the nine days. And again, you all have your homework assignments. This week's Parsha in Israel is called Masai. And this Parsha, a portion, portion, okay, Torah portion, but I know you're all becoming fluent in Hebrew by now, which is great. It kind of represents a culmination, kind of bringing in a, an ingathering of the story of our incredible sojourn in the desert after we escaped from Egypt and the revelation of the Torah on Har Sinai, the Mount Sinai. The Jewish people were poised to enter the Holy Land and to kind of adjust, to become normal, to embrace our national existence. Man or manna will no longer fall from heaven. It won't be plopped on our dinner plates. And there's going to be no miraculous traveling wells of water accompanying us. Indeed, we will have to sing for our supper, suppers. But you know, this portion deals with the issues of borders of Israel instead, and our problems, and to the methods of how we divide the land among the inhabitants. Now, it's kind of mundane stuff, and it's not fun. It's not as much fun as the splitting of seeds or you know, seas or animals walking onto the arks. But, um, you know, miracles are a lot more fun, plagues, rewards, punishments. That's all good stuff. But the Parsha tells us that... In the days to come, in the community to come, in the society to come, there are going to be murderers and murders. That we're going to need cities of refuge. Now, the Midrash can, implies that there really were no murderous um, happenings, events, during the sojourn in the desert. In short, in this kind of very pristine atmosphere, there was a real pure spiritual existence the desert kind of affords that we know that there's something very pure about the desert untainted but now the challenges of creating an ordered just and i'll say it a torah-based society under natural national human conditions this is the new order of the day it's going to take four centuries another what 400 years until the times of Shmuel, Samuel, David, and Solomon, for these challenges to be met, the transition from the supernatural to the mundane is much harder to accomplish successfully than the transition from the ordinary to the spiritual. I must get off text a section and say, it's what we say you know, in our Havdalah ceremony at Saturday night when the Sabbath 
leaves, we exit and we say, taking us from Kodesh Lechol, from the holy to the profane. So we actually get to experience this. Okay, it's not, this is not book stuff, shut the covers onto life. So in order to help this transition occur, memory of our past is critical. Connecting to the three weeks, the newness of the experience of the land of Israel, it's going to be seen in a kind of perspective by remembering we didn't grow up out of nothing. We came from holiness, we came from purity, we came from bloodshed, we came from inestimable sacrifice. Faith, confidence are going to dominate Jewish life in this new land when the Jews recall the history of their existence and their survival and their trumpet triumph over the unsurvivable and the daunting odds that were constantly facing them. Rashi indicates that the listing in this parsha, in this portion, they list the 38 encampments of Israel during this incredible schlep through the desert to remind the Jews of their past difficulties and their struggles and how they nevertheless prevailed. You know, according to Rabbi Beryl Wine, I think this is Rabbi Beryl Wine, part of the difficulty that Israel faces today, yeah, it is Rabbi Wine, in attempting to build a, quote, normal state, and there's nothing normal about Israel, and a nation, um, is that the early founders of secular Zionism, they, unfortunately, they denigrated the experiences of the Jewish exile, but attempted, you know, not only did they do that, but they attempted to erase them from the memory of that new Jew they wished to create. And, you know, creating a very problematic challenge uh, where we struggle with boundaries, demographics, value systems, ethos, the creating the creation of a kinder, gentler Israel. It's all compounded. It's all very modern stuff and it's heady stuff, but it's compounded by this lack of memory that really can help us remember everything that brought us here. The fact is, listeners, the fact is, my friends, the fact is, my soon-to-be friends, we've all been here in one way or another, and common sense dictates that we remember what has happened to us. Rabbi Wine finishes in talking about this particular parsha by explaining that the greatest Jewish sickness of our day is amnesia. All the problems and the difficulties that we face are in reality byproducts, results of that willingness to forget. The Torah portion of Messiah teaches us that not only should we remember, we must remember where we have been so that we have a sense of faith and confidence in where we want to go. When talking about the three weeks, and I don't want to get ahead of myself because next week's show, please God, please God, we're going to talk about Actually, Tisha B'Av, and I don't want to jump ahead, Tisha B'Av, the ninth of the month of Av, where we commemorate, not celebrate, but commemorate the destruction of our holy temples and the reason that we listen to this show from desperate, 
corners of the world. It's all because of that. Okay, so that was a sneak preview. Jews are good at mourning. Okay, oh, that sad Jew, that kind of sad, you know, the anti-Semites actually love that. They use that in a lot of their literature, the kind of weepy moaning, (laughs) you know, but let's face it, we've had a lot of practice doing so over these last centuries and certainly over the last one, Jewish suffering. um, A lot of time this suffering has been accepted with a stoicism, but still we immortalize it in the rituals and traditions and practices in Jewish life. In observing the three-week period of mourning, um, we ready ourselves for the saddest day on the calendar. And I share this with you because, you know, we can always keep this stuff light. But in speaking with clients, especially this last week, I had clients come to me and they really knew nothing about the three weeks. Over 40 40 years ago, uh, before I was Torah observant, even though I came from a culturally very, very Jewish family, we knew nothing about the three weeks. Tisha B'Av was, forgive me, it was a joke. We didn't know what it really meant, but it was, you know, we said, yeah, yeah, when it rains on Tisha B'av, or from now until Tisha B'av. What was Tisha B'av? It was just, it was, it was a springboard for humor, how wrong we were. In our time, every, you know, every, um, oh, here, okay, sorry. So in this three-week period, we're actually down to the last week, I believe, uh, almost the last week, is an ext- we're connected with the destruction of the temples in, Ju- in Jerusalem. Very difficult to conceptualize. And our exile from our homeland. And I say this for people who think, oh, yeah, you know, I want to see Morocco. I want to go to Greece. I'd really love to see the Far East. And I know that, you know, I'm Jewish. I really should see. I should. I should. Maybe we can play at a five-day stopover in Israel. We're not, we're not the stopover zone. We're the utopia. We're the end game, the end zone, the place we aspire to the place that we were spit out from, regurgitated. You know, there's another tragedy and sadness that is uh, prevalent during this time of, mo- uh, time of mourning. Moses' act, I hate saying Moses, Moshe's act of breaking the tablets of the stone when he witnessed that golden calf being worshipped. The golden calf, it has, not that it has nothing to do with us, It's the golden calf of Hollywood, the golden calf of Instagram, the golden calf of fashion police. In our time, every fast day, every time of mourning carries with it, officially or unofficially, this kind of overtone of sadness and commemoration regarding the destruction of European Jewry. What was it, 65 years ago, 70 years ago, 75? But it is that destruction of the temples and Jerusalem thousands of years ago that lie as the root cause of all of our later tragedies. For all of those sad events, they're products of our being in a long and indeed forced exile, an alien and defenseless people, the available scapegoat for all ills, for all failures, for all excuses of others. Um, This is the period where we reflect 
we reflect on the causes and the results of the tragedies, where we take personal responsibility, where we figuratively don sackcloth and ashes, and we reflect upon what has befallen us. When hatred, demonization of other Jews by Jews becomes the norm in a society, oh, I promise you, I promise you, not because I'm so smart. I promise you because history has shown us again, again, we call it history, but the hand of God, the bitter consequences that follow. If we are not using this period to reflect upon how we personally can actualize the mitzvah, the commandment of achdut, brotherhood, we will just if not relive, God forbid, God forbid, God forbid, various destructions, we will remain in an ugly abyss of self-recrimination and the inability to move forward. You know, the ramp to enter the Beis Hamikdash, the ramp that the priests walked up, they could have made a, they could have made it a staircase. It could have been a staircase to the um, Kodesh Kodeshim, the Holy of Holies. But it wasn't. It was a ramp. It wasn't because they didn't have good architects. It wasn't because of a lazy design. It was because when you're walking up a staircase, and those of us who have walking problems or have knee replacement or have other kinds of disabilities or, or lung conditions or you're just too tired from a night out of partying, when you're walking up the steps, you can stop for a moment. And you can rest. Caring for not one another doesn't afford us pit stops. When you have a ramp, it's best to run up that ramp. Because if you walk too slowly or worse, stop, you slide back, you fall back. And it's said that the priests ran up the ramp. If we would use this period to figure out how we would run toward our achdut, our brotherhood, run toward our embracing one another, run toward healing our communal heart, our communal soul, to internalize within ourselves the lessons of these tragedies. You know, it takes a long time to rehabilitate a human being. Rabbi Yisrael Limpkin of Salant, the Salanta Rebbe said, the loudest sound made in our universe is the sound of a human habit being broken and changed. One needs time and reflection to mourn properly and in a balanced fashion. Judaism, in fact, is very specific. We prohibit excessive mourning regarding personal tragedy. There are rules. Mourning is defined and limited by halacha, Jewish law, and customs indeed in terms of timing and, and behavior. No matter how great the anguish, and I know and I cherish the fact that there are people listening to this program today who have endured the unimaginable. 
There is no minimizing of that. I promise you. But we do not throw ourselves on a funeral pyre. The rabbis who commented on the Talmud characterized this period of mourning and the three weeks in the ninth of Av as being the ancient period of mourning. By that they mean that it became a paradigm, an ideal for all mourning in Jewish human life. Learning from this mourning can therefore become the start of the process of personal and national redemption. In closing today, I want to share with you a thought about healing, about redemption, and about the Jewish view versus, say, the other or the worldview. Any of you who have been in a museum, an art museum that features art from other lands, I think we have listeners from the Far East this morning. I remember walking through it as a child. It was so boring. Who wants to look at pottery? Shards of pottery. Blah, 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 blah. You know, in the Israel Museum, they have rooms where they've done archaeological digs. And they have shards of pottery. And the museum curators build around that pottery. And I think to myself sometimes... Um, I think to myself sometimes, so what? Big deal. So it's a pot. There's not one pot here, there's not another. Pots were precious. So difficult for us in our disposable society, disposable clothing, disposable relationships, disposable books, disposable dishes. We cannot understand that if a bride was bequeathed a pot in which to store her precious olive oil for all the years of her marriage, the breaking of that pot was a tragedy. Chinese pottery, I don't know if it's just Chinese, but I, I am familiar with the Chinese pottery. I've seen it's thin. It's almost as gossamer in appearance. And when it has been broken, it has been repaired with, I don't know, is it 18 karat gold, 24 karat gold, liquid gold. They put it together. And in so many instances, it becomes more interesting, even, dare I say, more beautiful than the original piece. When Moshe Rabbeinu descended from Har Sinai, one day later, then the rov, the masses, the community thought he was supposed to return. Imagine, in one day, they said, he's gone, he's dead, we're forlorn, forlorn, we're abandoned. It took only one day, one day for them, like children, to feel unrooted and untethered. And he came down and holding these precious tablets written from the hand of God, inestimable in value. His rage, his sadness, his despair was so great that he hurled
hurled them to the ground and they smashed, seemingly destroyed forever. Moshe went back. The tablets were repaired. They were put back together by substance, by tears, by bracha, blessings, by God's input. Something far greater than we can fathom. We can imagine Moshe descending and holding this new set of tablets even more carefully than before. Its preciousness that much more acute. The understanding that one wrong move can destroy what is precious. Under the chuppah, the bride and groom stand. Too many times it has happened and I see people without the knowledge. The minute the groom steps on the glass, what happens, listeners? The crowd roars, Mazel tov! But oh no, that's not what it's about. It is not Mazel tov. The stepping on the glass means freeze, reflect. We're reminded of the destruction of the base Hamikdash. We're reminded that this small action of Jewish unity under the Torah canopy is designed to put another brick in the temple. It is a time of reflection. The Mazel Tov comes after. Beis Hamikdash is the holy temple. All of us together take into account we have a wonderful opportunity together we can rebuild the base hamigdash one brick at a time one relationship at a time one kind word at a time it is indeed upon us upon our shoulders to take the canvas that God gives us every day and says, here, paint your love, paint your desires, paint your dreams, but most important, paint your kindness and your relationships to one another. And I will heal you and the Jewish people. My friends, I wish you a Shabbat Shalom from Jerusalem and a meaningful end to the three weeks. See you next week. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. 
Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candlelighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel. Plus, little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Israel News Talk Radio. 